Welcome everyone to this episode of Palmetto Guardian. Today we will be conducting a town hall with Major General Van McCarty, the Adjutant General of South Carolina, as well as Command Sergeant Major Russ Vickery, the State Command Sergeant Major. Welcome everyone, I'm Specialist Chelsea Baker. And I'm Specialist David Erskine. And I guess we're just gonna go right into our town hall with the Adjutant General and State Command Sergeant Major. So today we have Major General Van McCarty, the State Adjutant General, as well as Command Sergeant Major Russ Vickery, the State Command Sergeant Major. And today we will be conducting a town hall. Um, so welcome, thank you guys for both being here this morning. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Thank you for being here. So we're gonna go right into it. Um, these are the questions provided by the field for the Adjutant General and his staff to address. Any questions that were submitted and not addressed specifically on this podcast will be answered in the comment section on YouTube. So, sir, as the first appointed Adjutant General for South Carolina, how do you think your role is different from that of Major General Retired Livingston? First of all, I'm honored to have the opportunity to be the first appointed Adjutant General, the 29th Adjutant General of the great state of South Carolina. But, uh, from a practical standpoint, I haven't seen the, the duties be significantly different than what I was able to uh, see from uh, being in the deputy adjutant general position to what General Livingston did. Now, certainly we have found and we knew going into it there were going to be uh, some changes, primarily on the state side as it related some to some statutory languages that impacted some of our day-to-day -day operational issues, but nothing that has impacted our ability to perform the mission in any significant way at all. Um, probably the biggest uh, change that I have seen and probably the, the biggest thing that, that would be uh, a noticeable difference is obviously General Livingston and the previous adjutant generals were elected state constitutional officers. Uh, being elect, an elected official uh, has some additional responsibilities as to being able and willing and need to serve your constituents. Uh, so General Livingston, and I'm sure uh, General Spears and uh, General Marchant as before uh, had other duties that they had to perform, but I see those type of duties being critical to the success of the Adjutant General, whether they're appointed or elected. You've got to get out and be uh, with your constituency groups, whether that's veterans groups or whether that's uh, groups that just have an interest in the military or civic type organizations, and I try to be involved in those. But practically, day in and day out, the functional aspects of the job, um, minimal, uh, minimal issues and nothing that uh, impedes our ability to do the job. So with the recent changes in the command leadership, will we see more personnel changes with key positions and directorates? And when can the organization expect these leadership moves to reach a steady state so that the organization can stabilize? Well, I would uh, certainly uh, like to uh, remind everyone that an organization is never at true steady state. Uh, personnel changes are an ongoing part of the Army. Uh, we uh, intentionally design uh, assignments, whether they're uh, command assignments at the company level, battalion, brigade, or whatever, uh, anywhere from two to four years. We like to uh, select the three years a sweet spot. And that same philosophy really applies to all the other leadership positions within our organization. Uh, coming into it, I had obviously an opportunity to having served as a deputy for five years to be a part of 
the process of putting the current team that was in place under General Livingston, uh, you know, had an opportunity to make recommendations to him. Ultimately, the decisions that he made were his decisions. But I knew coming in who the team was, and I knew that uh, there were going to be uh, changes that had to be made. And I wanted to come in from the philosophy of I did not see the organization in need of any significant changes. Uh, we have a very functional uh, command structure. We have a very functional organization that's very effective. We deployed over uh, 25,000 soldiers and airmen over the last uh, uh, decade and a half. We do the things we perform as a, a state at a very high level when you look at the metrics that impact and, and show South Carolina's performance against other states, we rate very high. So I did not see any major issues. Each leader, though, has their own personality. Each leader has their own thoughts of how they want to take things, and I, too, have those thoughts. But I did not see a situation where the leadership that was currently in place uh, would not fit in my personality nor in my vision. Uh, after coming in, I had a, a deputy position I knew was going to be vacant because I had filled that position prior. That was my first priority. Uh, we have uh, obviously known that um, uh, now Brigadier General Jeff Jones is the Deputy Adjutant General. I knew going in that I was going to see a change in our Command Chief Warren Officer. Uh, Chief Puffenbarger had already uh, uh, given notice to both General Livingston and myself that he planned to retire, so I knew I would have that vacancy coming up. Um, in looking at the Command Sergeant Major, uh, Sergeant Major Vickery had been with us uh, in his current position a little over two years. Um, seeing that need of keeping some continuity at a senior uh, NCO level where certainly I count on him each and every day to provide counsel on all matters, but certainly matters that deal with our enlisted and our NCOs, I wanted to maintain some stability there. And then the other key position would be um, the chief of staff. And I, I think over the next six months, and that would be about a year that I would have been the adjutant general, you will see uh, a complete changeover in at least uh, four of those positions. I would uh, intend to keep the sergeant major uh, through my first term, and I'm only guaranteed a two-year first term. Uh, and with that in mind, I did not want to change everything out and see the first year um, be really centered around the staff getting into place, getting comfortable in what they were doing, and, and maybe not waste a year, but not use a year most productively to address the things that I felt we need to be moving towards in terms of uh, change. Uh, so um, I would think in about the next six months, you will see what will be the team that I will plan to carry through my term, and then beyond that point, uh, obviously the governor will have a, a significant say in that. So, sir, a topic that has recently been in the local news is construction and updates on armories and facilities through the state to include additional latrines built or even full-scale renovations. So, while there is a plan in place for these updates for many armories, some soldiers feel as though specific issues have not been addressed. For instance, the Bluff Road Armory in Columbia, South Carolina has a leak in the roof that causes some offices to flood and mold to build up. Is there a plan for the Bluff Road Armory to receive a new roof? Well, there is a comprehensive plan for all of our facilities, and one is what is most critical to that plan is, is adequate funding. Uh, we have worked uh, very hard over the last few years with the General Assembly here in South Carolina to get funding that's dedicated to uh, utilize with our federal funding on a, on a match basis 
Uh, most of it is a 50-50 match. Sometimes it's a 75-25 match, depending upon the scope and the, and the, pro and the project. But uh, the funding is always critical to whatever plan we have. And our FMO uh, office does have a comprehensive plan that they have uh, laid out where our needs are. It's a plan based upon um, tools that are commonly used in the trade. Uh, NGB provides us with um, a, a program called Builder that helps us assess our facilities to determine the need of repair and also to put a cost estimate on that. Uh, we were fortunate two years ago to get from the South Carolina General Assembly uh, a recurring line item of $1.5 million uh, to put towards our armory uh, revitalization program. We annually, though, need about $5 million of state money to match $5 million of federal dollars, what we uh, historically can count on to apply to those projects. Uh, that balance of that one point or that of that five million from the state, we have been successful with getting most of it each year through non-recurring dollars. And this year, we did pick up um, the non-recurring dollars to allow us to continue forward with our revitalization plan uh, going forward here in the future. Uh, this past year, we um, were able to complete projects in Conway, Chester, Hodges, Fountain Inn, Greenwood, Lancaster. Greenville and Sumter. Matter of fact, this coming Sunday we'll be in uh, Greenwood where we will have the ribbon cutting for the rededication of the Greenwood Armory. It went through a significant uh, remodelization, revitalization, remodeling. Uh, we did change to some degree here in the last few years our philosophy towards that. Uh, we were doing a multitude of projects across the state doing piecemeal efforts, patching parts of roofs, uh, uh, doing some work to fix isolated incidents just to kind of get that particular facility back online. But we found that we could get a better economy of scale and a better product by where the situation required. And many of our armories are in bad shape. That is a given. We know that from uh, this, the, the assessments that we've done. But instead of doing piecemeal projects, we now focus on, as we can, total refurbishing of the facility. And we believe that is a better utilization of our resource to get that done. It just means that some repairs are a little bit longer getting there, but when you get it done, you're getting a better quality product. Uh, we are looking uh, to do repairs or replacements on roofs in this coming year in Florence, here in Columbia, Clemson, Abbeville, Newberry, and Orangeburg. Uh, the Bluff Road Armory is one that we are working on now. We are working with our FMO office, and they have approval and have a construction process underway. Uh, it will all have to be sequenced, though, with the availability of funding and really our capacity through the uh, PFO office to execute contracts. But it is a project that is identified. Uh, unfortunately, it was just not as high on the priority list as some of the other facilities that I have already mentioned. So that for those that are familiar with the Bluff Road issue, if you believe that that's a bad situation, which I would concur it is, and we have facilities that had greater priority, you can probably envision the, the significance of the issues that we had in some of the other armories. Um, if I could add on to that same uh, thought processes, as our organization uh, continues to, uh, uh, when I say diversify, we see more females in our units. Uh, that has uh, been a, a very good thing for the Guard, but it's also presented us with some challenges. Most of our armories were built back in the 50s and 60s when the majority of our units by their design 
were all male. Um, we have now units that have as much as 25% female, but those facilities were never designed nor built to accommodate the female population to that degree from a, a restroom standpoint and a shower standpoint. So again, we have been working with our General Assembly on funding to put in additional facilities there, and we're working on that. And that is a priority because we feel we need to accommodate our female soldiers just as we would our male soldiers and really those basic needs of, um, of, uh, of accommodation. So uh, a lot of things on the plate right now, but there is a plan. And fortunately right now we do have a funding stream to help fund those projects. We just have a certain capacity that we're able to do each year. So, sir, are there plans to modernize and bring the main tank range at McCready Training Center up to qualification standards to support Object T or Objective T? Uh, <laughs> yes, there is, and uh, I say that with a little bit of a smile on my face because that has been uh, a, a project that has been ongoing now for a number of years. Uh, we see it as a critical need for us here in South Carolina. Um, but in the big, bigger scheme of things of what the overall priorities are of NGB and then the Army, um, there is adequate, I guess, facilities to accommodate the organization elsewhere, and I think that has had an impact on our ability to obtain the necessary funding for that project. That would be a project that would be funded with, with all federal dollars, and each year it gets bumped, uh, if not at least one year possibly, uh, more years down the road just simply from a funding standpoint. It is a priority that we have. We are constantly monitoring that project with anticipations of once the funding is there that we will execute that funding. But even if the tank range is modified at Fort Jackson, it still will not accommodate all of our needs from a maneuver perspective. Uh, the lanes will be uh, narrow and will not allow full gunnery for an entire uh, tank company. So there will still be a need to utilize the other facilities that we're currently accessing now, whether it's at Fort Stewart or any other facility that has full-scale tank ranges. It will, though, provide us with opportunities to support uh, normal IDT training. It just may not fully support what we will need for a battalion at AT if they need a, a full-scale gunnery event. But certainly it will give us some flexibility to do things that we're currently not able to do. And it is a project that we continue to monitor and put as a priority, but it cannot exceed some of the other priorities that we have because we do have a way to accommodate those needs if, um, in this particular situation. I mean, it's already made a victory. Yes. Many of the questions that were submitted focus primarily on enlisted promotions and the current select, train, educate, promote process, military education, soldiers assigned to non-deployable units and mentorship for junior enlisted soldiers. Here are some of the issues soldiers ask to be answered. Some soldiers feel, does, feel as though promotion opportunities are being denied to soldiers for reasons to include the time it takes soldiers to get a school seat for the non-commissioned officer education system and the Select, Train, Education, Promote program. They believe that this process is hurting retention in the South Carolina Army National Guard due to senior leaders not being able to get promoted, which causes junior soldiers to not be able to get promoted. So the question is, has the state petitioned the National Guard Bureau or anyone hired to get the Select, Train, Educate, Promote program reevaluated? All right. 
Well, the, the step policy and the priority policy operation message, PPOM, and if you ever hear anybody talk about it, 18001 was initiated as a direct fix to ensure soldiers received professional and institutional training. Uh, prior to being promoted in that position, they were not uh, that they were not ready for. During the height of the global war on terrorism, they we had soldiers that were promoted before training and filled positions in multiple vacancies in the NCO ranks. And upon review of those soldiers, they were not equipped or trained accurately to be able to lead those soldiers. And this negatively impacted the unit and its readiness. So training is an integral part of being an NCO, both as an individual and as well as training your soldiers. As it relates to the question, ensuring dedicated, hardworking soldiers get selected promotion should be the goal. Talent management is going to take the lead over the legacy system of longevity. And I'm going to expound a little bit more on that. The select uh, step system as it is right now does not prevent, and, and this has been something that we've championed for the last three years of, of, of me being here, you don't have to be selected in order to be able to get to that next level of NCOES. Uh, for instance, BLC is a great example. Here in our state, we own the schoolhouse, and we have the ability to flex and go up with quotas. And to wait until a soldier becomes U5 and available to be in that position and then be put into the school, and we have vacancies go unused down there at the schoolhouse, there is no uh, reason that that soldier can't get in that position. So it's really incumbent back to the soldier of the way it was many years before is to go to your school every time you get a chance. Work on that professional education every time you get a chance. Uh, the funds availability in the last two to three years for going to NCO schools has been unfettered from the G3 side. They've allowed ATs and NCOES schools to go on uh, both and you can do as, as basically as much as the soldier can do. So you could have a soldier that uh, just can't get to an NCO school because it doesn't fit their job, but you have another soldier that that can get there that could literally promote ahead of that person because they've developed their self. Okay. Uh, soldiers also feel as though career advancement for enlisted soldiers gets stagnant. What can be done for the enlisted promotion process to mirror the officers where officers rotate to other positions every three to four years? Okay. Well, the, the function of the non-commissioned officer is to provide the organization with continuities as officers transfer in and out. Enlisted soldiers have the opportunity for lateral assignments. The soldiers should work with their NCO support channel and chain of command for different opportunities to enhance their careers. And to expound on that as well, we encourage soldiers at any time that they're in a position to always be looking for that next challenge, that next broadening assignment out there. A great example of it is uh, in our schoolhouse out there. We need, we need soldiers that are great soldiers in the field, that are great in their field craft, to come to the RTI, to come spend 18 months, 24 months there, become instructor qualified, and take everything that you've learned from the field, give it back in that format, and then come back out of there and go back out into the field, being a better soldier, bringing that schoolhouse knowledge back out there with you. Same thing applies to recruiting as well. We, we have a very good recruiting force that's out there right now, and we have lots of very good soldiers that are out there, males and females, that you know want to tell the guard story and want to tell everything that's good about what's going out there. That is another broadening assignment that you've got to look for. So 
I would give the advice to the soldiers is to widen your aperture. You know, if, if you're focused on, I'm just going to be this, and this is all I'm ever going to be, and I'm never going to go anywhere else, then that path is slow, and, it, and it's hard. And sometimes it gets encumbered because there are people above. But when you spread it out and you get multiple places to go and multiple MOSs, uh, you, you do by broadening yourself out there, make yourself available for multiple promotions. We always encourage people to, uh, to get out there and, and make your career. One of the things I tell the kids when they come in at the battle handoff, I said, you know what, you're in charge of your career from here on in. Nobody else. You find you a good NCO to mentor you, but you've got to do the work. Can I, can I add on? Uh, yeah, yes, sir. By all means. Uh, one thing there that I think uh, is, is important to the organization, and as I mentioned just a little bit ago, I, I think stability in the workforce, certainly in the Guard, is, is critically important. Uh, and I, 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 I gauge that on my experience both on active duty and in the Guard. Um, on active duty, you routinely see assignments from 18 months to two years, and that is the process that the Army uses to fill all of its uh, needs and to give officers and NCOs a, a wider, uh, I guess, perspective of the Army as a whole. Um, and when you're doing that 365 days a year, uh, you have an opportunity to get experience and exposure in assignments maybe shorter in duration. But for the Guard and Reserve, uh, I think one of our greatest strengths has been in the past is our stability in our ranks, our ability for individuals to be in position long enough to gain the skill sets, whether they're the tactical skills, the technical skills, or the administrative skills to be proficient in subject matter experts in their area. So you will see during my tenure um, an emphasis put on stability uh, of assignments uh, and where we have used a rule of two to four and the three being a sweet spot, I will want to hear from leadership, from the uh, MSC commanders, from the battalion commanders, when we're deviating from a three-year, instead of being a sweet spot, it is the expected term of assignment. And I would expect that we apply that same philosophy to some of our, our NCO positions, our readiness NCOs. There's nothing probably more critical to our organization than our readiness NCOs. They have to be capable, uh, skilled, uh, and, and I think seasoned individuals to do all the things that a readiness NCO in this organization today have to do to allow us at all levels to succeed because it all starts there in many cases. So I will look to see, along with Sergeant Major, certainly we want diversity of assignments. We want to give people the portfolio to be successful in advancing their career, but we don't want to put that as a priority over what we believe is in the best interest of the organization and of the mission. So stability of assignments to me will be an area of emphasis and importance uh, to ensure that we are capable of uh, going forward of, of handling really complex missions that I see that we will face. Sergeant Major, when the promotion list comes out and the soldiers request feedback about their position on the list, soldiers feel as though they do not receive valid feedback, only that the board was impartial. The soldiers want to know what they need to do to improve themselves to rank higher on the next list. How can this issue be resolved? All right, well, we'll, we'll go with what we've got here and we'll talk a little bit more about this because we've actually been dealing with this some this week. Okay. Uh, due to the confidentiality and integrity of the board, 
only the president has the full purview of the board and that's for the protection of the soldiers and, and everyone included, you know, because the integrity of the board is is what you have to be able to maintain and prove. It has to it has to be able to stand up to the uh, IG and and whatever else is in there. So it's also incumbent upon each soldier to review their record before the boards and during the annual records review. And uh, IPSA coming online is going to help that out tremendously as well. A lot of times, I know that's a, a lot of pressure to put on that unit readiness NCO or training NCO to get in there and uh, validate those records when those board times are coming up and if somebody slips through the cracks, you know, it's uh, it, it's not it's not necessarily that full-timer's fault. You do have some skin in the game and that, that person needs to do that. Soldiers should also work closely with their raider and their chain of command to ask them where can they improve, you know. Am I, am I doing it right? Uh, I asked the general just the other day, sir, hey, have, have I got the metrics dialed in where you want them at? Am I, am I focusing on the right target? Do I need to change my shot group? You know, and having a strong NCOER is foundation of a strong bo a board packet. It requires the soldiers to be actively involved in their evaluation, always finding ways to have comments and measure uh, qu something quantitative is important to the process. But I, I don't want people out there hunting bullet comments. You know, I want you performing your job and, and, and doing what you're supposed to do, and this is just a, a process of it. It's, it's uh, not very hard to find somebody who's out there just trying to, to get a bullet comment either, and uh, that could ding you negatively. Military and civilian education carries a lot of importance in the board process. Uh, if you're not current, currently not getting your military education, get with your chain of command and ask and prioritize. Uh, one way that they can do that is using ACT. Army Career Tracker is a powerful tool that we've tried to talk about multiple times within the organization, and, and it, but it's got to be something that happens at the fire team level. This is something that, it, it, that we broke down from the, at the Sergeant Majors meeting, and if we break all of our numbers down, all the way down from the fire team, all the way back up to the Sergeant Major, no NCO within the organization manages more than four to five people. It's a very manageable number. So if every person took the person who was their sub, their subordinates, or if everyone took their leaders and linked them up on ACT, they could help mentor them with their military education through ACT, and it would open up a, a plethora of things that are out there. There's a JKO, AKO, ACCP, all types of military education that you can go out there and gain distance learning points for, learn about uh, everything from... Uh, protecting space to uh, radiological conditions through JKO, through SJE, PME. There's just tons and tons of stuff out there, but it's not just going to fall in your lap. I, I use the analogy with them, you know, if you want something, you're going to have to work for it. You know, if you want that DVD at the bottom of the bin at Walmart, you're going to have to empty the bin out and get the good one at the bottom. So it takes a little bit of work. Uh, if you're not a, your chain of command can prioritize your education requirements for civilian education, more enlisted soldiers now have degrees. So, you know, if you know the people you're competing against or getting college credits out there, well, we, if you're not getting college credits in the National Guard and you're not spending that money, you're just leaving that money on the table. And uh, it doesn't say you have to go to a traditional school. There's many, many online opportunities to go out there and earn those college credits. And then those college credits all the way up into a degree have a certain set number of points that'll that count on there as well. APFT scores on NCOERs are always considered, so that's one way to, another way, easy way to differentiate yourself. 
especially as an enlisted and uh, a uh, sergeant and above, making sure your DA photo matches what's on your ERB, making sure your ribbons are correct. I mean, that's the things that they taught you in, in basic in AIT. And then having a strong NCOER, being involved in your NCOER, being involved in the writing of it, not just saying, oh, well, they'll write something about me. You know, make it, if you want to do something, do something easy for your boss. Give him uh, what you've done. Give him, tell him this is, this is what we can put on there. And, you know, and if you've done it well and done it right, they'll agree. Okay. Also, uh, we're losing a lot of junior leaders because they cannot be promoted due to unavailability of slots. Soldiers move from unit to unit for promotions, but also want stability in their careers. So what can we do about pro progressing soldiers, progressing soldiers, there you go, to the next level? So unavailability of slots, we're, I'm, I'm dealing with that issue, in fact, this week as well. Uh, on your MTO or your UNMR, your unit managing document, there's only so many paragraph and line numbers that are out there. And just because you want to be somewhere, if there's somebody else that's already in that spot, it's not going to set you up for promotion. I've got uh, two soldiers that are fully qualified, BLC certified, outstanding soldiers, 300 PT scores, fantastic guys, but there's no place to go. And when a soldier reaches that point in time, he needs to sit down with his mentor, preferably through ACT, and, and, him, and they talk about this and say, okay, we understand, you know, the next time you'll be able to get promoted here because this unit is at 150% strength. NGB only allows us to go to 125. We can't promote you to an E5. So his next solution, when he and I have the next discussion, is going to be, son, what else would you like to do? You know, you're fully qualified, fully qualified in, in here. We would owe it to you to give you a chance to requalify in another MOS that would interest you. And we find ourselves doing that a, a lot with people that are coming up on their ETS. Some people join and, and uh, it just ain't their cup of tea sometimes. Maybe I didn't want to be an engineer. or Maybe I didn't want to be an air defense guy. Maybe I want to be a... PAO, or maybe I want to be a uh, paralegal, or maybe I want to be in the medical field. And the leadership has always encouraged our soldiers to ask that question. And, and, if, they're, and if you don't see or you see that you're going to run into a, uh, uh, a place where you're not going to have any more promotion capability, you know, within the, a reasonable time frame, then we've always offered the uh, reclassification out there because it makes our force stronger. We have many NCO vacancies across the force right now with a lot of excess sitting in different areas that if we could cross-level all those apart, we could fill all those vacancies out there, but it would take some reclassification to make it work. Gotcha. Okay. Um, now this, is, this, I believe, comes from the, the Air Guard side, but uh, what weight does the EPR system have? Does it help with promotions, awards, and decorations and new positions? And I'll have to go with the air answer that they wrote for me. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so the EPR system is a program established by the Air Force as a component for all of its branches, active duty, reserves, and guard. It's the equivalent to the appraisal system for civilians to see how well the member is performing in which supervisor provides them, in which supervisor provides them on a rating. On the active duty side, it aids the promotions. Uh, on the guard side, it doesn't. However, there's been discussion on this changing. Also, if an Air Guard member decides they want to apply for a STAT, tour of duty, or ADOS, or duty with uh, 
another unit or state, the most current EPR is requested as part of that package being submitted. So having a current EPR can aid in writing declarations for a member, especially when they deploy downrange, when the system is utilized correctly as it's supposed to show the growth and character development of a member. So I'm, I'm taking theirs as like our NCOERs, uh, same, same criteria applies and it applies in the civilian world uh, throughout corporations and stuff. Everybody has a performance appraisal. You know, back years ago for me, it was a performance appraisal for Lowe's companies. How have you been doing on your job? And we're going to give you this much of a raise or whatever. So, uh, you know, it's, it's all back to uh, standard practice. Guard does a really great job both on the Army and the air, and, and, I, and I tell our soldiers this all the time. You are so unique because you walk between both worlds. You can walk in the military world and perform, and it just helps you perform better in the civilian world. And if you use the two together, they usually complement each other very well. Sir, okay. so we have another question for you. Um, in future DISCA operations of similar scope and nature of past response, do you expect the response from the South Carolina National Guard to be the same in duration, manpower, and mission sets? And do you see any opportunity to reduce our overall time on state active duty in the future? Well, I think uh, if we look at a, the organization in which we are, and whether you're on the Army side of it or the Air side of it, I think from your earliest days as a soldier and airman, uh, you're, you're given uh, kind of guidance and you are reminded of no matter how well we plan for and look to execute an event through uh, exercises and rehearsals, the enemy always has a say in the plan. Well, in this case, I'm not going to uh, characterize Mother Nature as being our enemy, although Mother Nature certainly has a significant role in what we do as an organization in response to uh, the event that happens. Obviously, South Carolina is traditionally a hurricane state, but we have other significant uh, potential uh, natural disasters that we have to be cognizant of and mindful of everything from uh, earthquakes, which we do have significant fault lines in the state, and we have had a history, uh, not so recent history, of earthquakes, but uh, uh, the tornadoes that we see spawn off each and every year, uh, all those kind of things are things that we have to be prepared for and ready to execute on. Certainly, though, when it comes to uh, our response to natural disasters or other type of events, uh, the men and women of the South Carolina National Guard are prepared and I believe are certainly willing and capable of stepping up and answering whatever that call may be. When those situations occur and they rise to the level of a state emergency, uh, we obviously respond and work for the governor. Uh, governor McMaster uh, has been uh, very proactive in wanting to use the Guard as uh, some of our more, more recent governors have been, and I think that is in our overall best interest to get out early and to the greatest degree we can get out in significant numbers to be prepared to uh, execute our missions. But it does uh, create some issues or concern for the force. Um, you know, obviously the bulk of our force, approximately 80% of it are M-Day soldiers. And for us to uh, mobilize to the full extent of what our capabilities are, we have to rely on our M-Day force to be a part of that uh, mobilization response. Uh, when you look at what our M-Day soldiers do each and every day, their availability uh, can be in some cases somewhat delayed. Uh, we have a number of uh, individuals that work as long-distance truck drivers. Now, 
in the event of a hurricane, you can normally see them seven days in advance and you may be able to start being uh, proactive in preparation, whether certainly the Guard is, but our, our soldiers and airmen, I would uh, expect that they would also. But when we look at uh, uh, an event, we certainly look at it from what we anticipate the scope of that event going to be. Uh, come of the things that have come out of some of our more recent storms, and we have been very active in the last five years um, since the great flood of uh, 2015. We've responded to events pretty much in each successive year, whether it was a hurricane-type event, a, a fire at Pinnacle Mountain, or we've had some winter storm events, although a winter storm in South Carolina traditionally would not necessarily uh, be what some states would call an event, but for us it is. Um, so we have been very active. And we know from just our uh, looking at our response that some of our units are more apt to be involved uh, early on and more apt to be involved uh, for longer periods of time in support of those events. We're going to take our guidance from what the governor believes are in the best interest of the state of South Carolina. We're going to mobilize the necessary uh, resources to be in a position to respond. But what we have learned, though, um, is that early on response means that we probably need to be looking for uh, where those replacements are going to come from, especially as it relates to our engineers and our MPs. Those are resources that are in high demand in most of these events, and they are in limited number in the state of South Carolina. We do have two engineer battalions, but we also have to balance those battalions on other current missions that they may be supporting. And we have had a lot of our engineer units supporting the war fight or part of exercises out of country. Same thing with our MPs. So we have recognized here, and last year we were very aggressive with this, and I would anticipate we will be if we have an event this year or in the future, uh, once we mobilize, beginning to look at where those backfill units will come uh, through EMAC agreements or if we have to go to the level of a, a dual status command where we would exercise and leverage Title X forces. Uh, but we will always utilize the procedures that our state EOC has in place. It's the, the National Incident Command model that we, that we apply where we should be one of the last resources that are brought into the fight, so to speak. Uh, however, there are going to be situations where we may not be the, the first choice, but we are the most logical choice just based upon our capabilities. So we will be looking through EMAC or others to have a more aggressive plan to rotate our units out. Uh, seven to ten days uh, for unexpected type mobilizations can be of a significant impact to our soldiers and airmen. We know that, and we've had engineers in the past events to be on orders for as much as 30 days during an event. When you couple that with their already high op tempo, it can add to and create some significant strain, not only to the soldier or airman and their family, but to their employer. So we are, uh, are mindful of that, and we are looking to address that. We did start uh, a, a few years ago uh, using technology now and technology is rapidly advancing that uh, can help us do what we just commonly refer to now as predictive analysis. Uh, we know it's going to be a heavy rain event uh, and we know from some just uh, experience where our issues are going to come but through the predictive analysis process the computer models now we're better to, we're able to get some better fidelity of where some of those impacts are going to be, when they're going to be 
So we're able to somewhat use that as a trigger for our deployment process. It's no need to have soldiers deployed sitting at an armory or sitting at a McCready site if they're not going to be needed for another four to five days. Uh, but we have to balance that. Um, units that have to get to the affected area, in many cases, if we don't get them there pre-storm, just due to all the traffic congestion of trying to um, evacuate the state from the coast, can make it, if not a significant challenge, almost an impossibility to get units down. So there are going to be some situations that we're going to have to deploy early, and there are going to be some situations where we deploy early and Mother Nature decides she's going to do something different, and when everybody looks at it and applies that uh, armchair quarterback effect, why did we do this? But we have got enough experience to know that we cannot be that accurate in predicting storms, and we're going to always err on the side of what is most effective in terms of taking care of the citizens of the great state of South Carolina. But we are going to look at how we can better utilize resources to um, transition out those critical uh, skill sets that we know are in high demand. Uh, we will continue to utilize as much of our force as we possibly can uh, from a state perspective. Uh, normally these are all in a voluntary status, uh, but we are also now using our Air Guard to a greater extent than we've had in the past, and they've got some significant capability, and we're still looking to see how we can grow utilizing that capability. Uh, our State Guard has been a tremendous resource to us. Uh, they've had as many as uh, 600 State Guard uh, personnel deployed in support of some of these events. Um, so we're trying to take lessons learned, and our J3 and his staff uh, are you know, constantly looking at what is the next event and how will we respond to that. But in the end, I feel comp comfortable in knowing that the men and women of the South Carolina National Guard, Army or Air, will answer the call and do what is necessary to take care of this, their state their families, their friends, their communities. And we hear from our soldiers quite often that this is why I joined the Guard. I do the things that are necessary to support the war fight, but helping at home is really what I saw as my role in, in joining the National Guard. So I feel good about that. Uh, we certainly uh, are working now more uh, with our Title X partners, and we had Title X assets in South Carolina during Hurricane Florence. They were never actively deployed against the missions that we had because we never had a situation where we were exhausted of our capabilities either internal of South Carolina or through EMAC with other guard states. And that is how the model is designed and intended to, to be utilized because um, we cannot always count on those Title X forces to be there. Through the real world situations, they could be deployed. So those soldiers that came from Fort Stewart, uh, came from other places, may not be there. So we uh, we need to be self-sufficient and be able to respond to our problems. And our force has demonstrated time and time again that they are very capable of doing that and doing an outstanding job. And I'm very proud of what they've done in the past. So, sir, it is understood that government cell phones are an extreme cost to the South Carolina National Guard, but they provide a significant capability and flexibility for the full-time soldiers to be accessible outside of duty hours. With the loss of data-capable phones to some of the units in the field, for full-time personnel, is the expectation that work will cease at 1,700 daily? Or would the state consider developing a memorandum directing key duty positions to secure their own data-capable phones and provide a stipend to offset the cost to ensure 
key personnel can still remain accessible without being tethered to a network laptop? Well, first of all, I would say that uh, in my 37 years of military service that I don't think I've ever seen a time where we look at the duty day being defined by the hands on the clock. Uh, yes, we do have uh, prescribed duty days, but I think we all go about it from the philosophy of we do what we have to do to get the job done. I don't think our mission um, and our responsibilities to the organization, to the state, to our country can be defined by, quote, a, a specific duty day. Now, certainly we want to adhere to that to the greatest degree we can because obviously um, we're busy, we have been very busy, and I want our soldiers and our airmen to have an opportunity to spend time with their family. That is, that is, that is very important. Uh, so we want to balance that with what the mission requires and what is necessary, but we also got to be very cognizant of cost. Uh, through the, an extensive uh, analysis that was done through the, through the G6 office and uh, throughout the organization, uh, we were able to make some changes that we don't believe are going to have significant impact on the organization's ability to perform its mission. Uh, we were able to do so at about uh, about a savings of nearly 50% of what we were spending. We were spending roughly uh, $600,000 a year on cell phones and the data plans to support those, and we're able to cut those costs nearly in half. Now we can um, everything that we do is a trade-off. Everything uh, that we do is somewhat tied to funding, and funding uh, is is at this point in time. Um, been pretty good to us, but we know that that uh, is not always the case. And so when it is good, we cannot allow ourselves to get into a, an operating pattern that we don't know that we can sustain against. Uh, but I don't believe here we're taking a risk that is going to impact our ability to do the job. Because when we looked at the uh, cell plan usage, they also looked at how we could mitigate that. Um, there are ways that our, our full-time force can get around. We did not take uh, the data phones from everyone. We, we maybe limited some of the, the data access, and in some cases they were taken, uh, they were, their, their data phones were replaced with a flip phone, which means obviously you have still voice communications and I think text communication, but you don't have access to the network type solution. Uh, again, a balance, uh, but if we don't have it right uh, I would encourage our staff and I would encourage the individuals that may feel like their ability to, to do the job is affected and we will look at those on a one-on-one -on -one basis. But um, we've got to also be aware that that savings can be applied to other needs that the organization has primarily in the, the digital world. Uh, we've got to continue to upgrade our system. I think um, if you work uh, in this organization uh, and you're at your desk at any frequency, you've, you experience a lot of frustration from the system not working how you would expect and want it to work. And our, our G6 section, along with all of the IT uh, support folks through NGB, work hard at it. But it is a, a system that is constantly challenged. And without going into a lot of details, it's challenged by our, our peer and near-peer competitors, so we've got to be cognizant of that. But we've got to invest uh, in updating that system, keeping it uh, as, as modern as we can, 
and again, we've got to utilize our funds to the greatest degree we can. Uh, so I would encourage those individuals that maybe feel like that they have been affected by it um, to look at the other options that are available. If you've got to work uh, after hours and need access, uh, the Doom office has MiFi and Cradle Points that are available. If you're having issues in getting that, I can work to help you get that. Just don't ask me to put it into service because uh, <laughs> anyone that knows me knows that I'm significantly uh, technologically challenged and about the only thing I know to do is call Miss Julia or Mr. Jack or somebody to come and help me fix the problem. But if you don't have the tools you need to do your job, then I want to know that because that is important to the organization. But uh, we've got to look to see how we can get the job done and get the job done effectively, most importantly, we've got to be effective but as efficiently as we can so we can put those savings to other needed areas. Funds are not limitless. We've, we know that. And um, the chief of staff, along with uh, the, the directorates, meet regularly to see how we can continue to squeeze uh, to get more juice out of the, the lemon and how we can put that into other needs of the organization. Uh, I can assure you right now we have greater needs and we have resources. So where we can... Um, make some changes, uh, then we will do so to try to see that if we can apply those savings elsewhere. In the end, what we've done cannot be reversed back if we find in six months to a year that uh, our efficiencies have, have significantly gone down in our effectiveness, but we believe we've got a plan and a way to accommodate what may be those outlying circumstances and situations. So I, I would hope that we can get there from here by doing what we've done. Um, you know, we did it in that analysis. We found that we had some anomalies where some phones had just a huge uh, uh, data usage rate associated with it, um, probably more so than what you could expect to be normally used for work applications. I don't. We did not make a decision on in this case of throwing the baby out with the bathwater that we may have had some abuse but we felt that we could get at what needs to be done by making these changes. Again, if a directorate feels that they've got people that need this, by all means, come through the chain of command and we'll see what we can do to fix those needs. But we've got to recognize that the savings here were significant and that we can apply that to other needs of the organization. Okay. Uh, Sergeant Major. Uh, how can the state ensure M-Day soldiers and airmen have the access they need to the Army and Air Force systems during drill weekends and annual training so that they can be relevant to the, to the teams they are part of? For instance, who provides the computers? How many is a unit authorized? How will these computers be kept up to date? Who is responsible for the update? And how will the M-Day soldiers and airmen gain and maintain access to these systems? Okay. Uh at and during AT and drill weekends, and I'll go with the DUEM's answer here, the uh, South Carolina Guard DUEM is funded and resourced to support computers for the full-time manning to include AGRs and technicians. This is one computer for every fully funded full-time authorization. The organization is not able to provide a computer for each M-Day soldier. We don't have 10,000. However, the units are encouraged to repurpose the RCAS computers that were not upgraded to Windows 10. So as we go through our evolutions, we have thousands of computers that are at RG6 that are 
able to be repurposed and turned into a, what they would call a kiosk. So these window, these can support unit requirements to include soldiers completing SSDs or kiosks. Computers on the network are to keep up to date and online by when the updates are completed by the by the Duum shop. So they have to be plugged into the network if if and on there to be updated. Uh, soldier members needing access to the network must have a valid security clearance, maintain their cybersecurity training and their acceptable use policy, which you can and can't do on those systems. Additionally, there are DL labs across the state. There's one here at Bluff Road Armory uh, in Clemson uh, at the Merck that has multiple systems out there that goes vastly unused. Uh, in fact, we can pull the usage and stuff up on there and if team leaders or platoon leaders or platoon sergeants or first sergeants can take those and reserve those and access and reserve those labs for when they need them during those times, they can have them there. Uh, the, the DL labs, like I said, are, are a fantastic resource uh, that, that they should use. Now I'll go further on to say there is, with the, with the technology that's currently out there right now, the Army tends to run a little bit behind the technological world that's out there. So sometimes your systems that you, the computer that you have at home or the laptop that you have at home or whatever your tablet or whatever your system is, generally is uh, too fast and too good for what the Army's doing. And you have to sometimes be a little computer savvy and be able to regress that system or portion part of it off to be able to, to work with that system. Sometimes Internet Explorer only works with some Blackboard products and some, some programs within the Army. They haven't been able to get it up to Windows Edge yet. But there's so much information out there that if you'll just talk to the Duum guys and spend a little time with our IT guys, I have yet to, in, in my experience, and my grandkids and my kids force me to stay technologically savvy on it. So I can take a, a laptop uh, off the shelf with a cat card reader and literally go everywhere I need to go except inside the South Carolina network and access files inside the network. And most of the time in the M-Day force out there, you don't need to be inside the network affecting things in there. You need to be viewing things like inside of DPRO, whereas if we can get all leaders to DPRO, the Director's Personal Readiness Overview, that is a power tool that can be accessed on any computer out of any network just with a cat card reader and the proper permissions, and you can see literally everything that you need to see out there. It stays about 24 to 48 hours behind uh, NGB, but it is the tool that NGB uses to look at all of us in the entire nation. Same thing applies to ACT, easily uh, accessible there, as, and same thing applies to EES, where you're gonna do your NCOERs and your OERs. All that will work on a common laptop with a cat card reader on McDonald's network if you want, you know, so you just wherever you have Wi-Fi capability at, you know, it's, it's, it exists in the world out there. It really kind of depends on how bad you want it. If you're only going to do Army work and an Army computer on an IDT weekend when you can get to a computer, yeah, you're probably going to fall behind your peers because there's going to be somebody out there who's sharp enough who says, yeah, hey, I got my computer. I'm going to get into my SSDs. I'm going to go ahead and get mine done. And I'm going to go ahead and get this done and this done and this done too. And then when they show up there is, what are you doing? Well, I'm doing my SSDs. Well, I'm going out here and doing something else because I've already got my stuff done. So it gets back around to who takes care of your career and how bad do you want it?
if I could just follow on that just a moment. Um, uh, utilizing um, really the IMRX process, it's easy to get out there on a Saturday and see a lot of soldiers, but it's also an opportunity to me to have a, a few minutes with some of the leadership that I would not otherwise maybe be able to get as easy access to company commanders, uh, battalion commanders. And so I've been going out as time permits and talking with, and, and many of these are M-Day soldiers, and I have limited access to them. But in one of the discussions I had with one of the company commanders here recently, we sat down and uh, Sergeant Major and I had a computer in there, and we uh, at that time were had talking about our uh, metrics as an information on civics, and civics is still available. And yes. Sergeant Major has worked with the with the Sergeant Majors at the MSC level and battalion level to help them understand either through DPRO or civics how they can get access to information. But the um, commander, um, uh, you know, very hardworking young man, uh, very in aggressively trying to get at the issues that we were discussing, but um, you know, he when I asked him, were you aware of this information? And you know, his response was, uh, no, I wasn't, not to the extent you're talking here today. And um, I said, well, do you have access to a computer? No. Well, uh, case in point is, somebody said, we were able to get him, or he does now have a computer. Now, I'm not yet sure how much he's been able to apply the utilization of that computer, but it opened up a totally different set of dynamics that he can have as a commander uh, that he can come in and, and talk um, uh, more educated to his full-time staff as it relates to the condition and where his unit is at. Because that, that information on civics is basically live information. Um, so those, those computers, like those other uh, resources I mentioned a little bit ago, Cradle Point and MiFi, uh, they are there and we will work to make them available uh, to the extent that we can. You've got to obviously do the things that the sergeant major list to keep the uh, computer active and up to date on the system. You've got to be accountable for it. But uh, we want to put in the hands of our, not only our full-time force, but our M-Day force, the tools that are, are available and necessary for them to be the productive leaders that we've got to have today in the organization and the environment that we're working in. So again, um, from a leadership standpoint, and to our uh, force, ask. If you don't ask, the easy response is going to be no. And then the easy response when you ask is sometimes going to be no. And I encourage our, our leadership at all levels to help us find a way to find the answer of yes to questions. So if you're not getting a yes on things certainly in this area, um, let Sergeant Major know, let me know, and we will do what we can to to get you what you need. Uh, again, there's not ever going to be where the, the resources are as available in, in quantity to make everything available to everyone, but I don't think the situation here requires that. And until we tap out on those resources, we can't say we need more. So, sir, another concern for soldiers and airmen are that their concerns about the organization are not being heard. So the question um, is, the organization wants to know if they can see the results of previous command climate surveys and the actions taken to resolve the identified issues. Uh, the, the answer to that is yes. There was an extensive uh, survey done. It was back in 2017. Um, Daomi, which is the Defense Equal Opportunity Management Institute, uh, has these surveys available. We 
conducted one of those surveys. It was geared primarily to the full-time force. Uh, at the time, we had um, approximately 1,500 full-time employees, and that we know that that figure does fluctuate from time to time. Uh, we had about 419 soldiers that were uh, that participated with it. Statistically, that number did not meet the the number for it to be quote a validated survey. But there was quite a bit of information that came out of that survey that we thought was very interesting and to some degree concerning. Uh, since that time and under uh, General Livingston's leadership and, and since followed up on that, uh, we have been working um, issues related to that survey. Uh, that survey uh, pointed out some things that uh, we need to be aware of. Uh, one of them is a, a trust and leadership issue. Uh, leadership, cohesiveness, diversity management, organizational processes, and then the term of exhaustion. And, and when we looked at it, I was um, you know, uh, not necessarily uh, sure what all that meant because the way some of those uh, questions were worded, it didn't necessarily define. And the one from exhaustion uh, was one that I said, we need to find out what we're talking about there. But um, uh, Brigadier General Jones uh, has been now working with uh, breakout groups from that and we have been trying to uh, get a better understand of what the issues were so that we can apply solutions to getting at those issues. But the survey itself is available, uh, and I think, and I will make sure that we have how you can access it put on the skip. Um, Chief uh, Ives is uh, one of the point of contacts there, and, and if, if there are questions that go to issues with the survey that I'm not able, able to answer maybe here or in, in a one-on-one -on -one setting, I'll certainly be glad to get those people that can help uh, uh, put the information out. But we are uh, interested in knowing what our organization thinks. And, and we do intend to conduct another one of those surveys. Uh, we would um, uh, also like, though, to encourage our units. There are other command climate surveys that are available and are intended for commands to use. And I would recommend that an incoming commander, uh, I would recommend that any commander, but an incoming commander uh, you want, utilize one of these command climate surveys. Uh, you can get a, a, an understanding of what maybe some of the issues are in your ranks that will help you uh, work through and develop a, a leadership plan that can you know, not only address those issues, but in the end, uh, allow you to be a more effective unit in the execution of your mission. Uh, after you have completed your, uh, your command uh, in that three-year mark or, or greater that we've discussed earlier, uh, before that, I would recommend that the command utilize a follow-up command climate survey to see if you were able to move that mark in a positive direction for your unit. Uh, I've done some investigations before, 15-6 related. Um, very focused on one issue, and that's how 15-6s normally are. But in sitting in and talking with soldiers, I learned uh, by being you know, accessible and listening to them that a lot of their issues and concerns may not have been directly related to that question, but um, there were things that would be uh, or could be captured in the command climate survey. And, uh, and for a lot of reasons, uh, People sometimes are reluctant to elevate their issues or concerns, uh, but through that survey process, it is an online tool, it's anonymous, you can, uh, you can address issues that you believe 
uh, need to be uh, looked at, and you can do it in a way that I, I would hope that the command will take it as a let's get at this from a, a positive perspective versus from uh, any kind of uh, retributional position. Uh, but we're all in this organization together, and I think the more we can learn about uh, us as individuals in terms of what our concerns or needs are, the better off we are getting at. But the, the survey, again, that was done, it is accessible, it is available, and we do intend to conduct another. Uh, the focus groups that General, Living, or General Jones has been a part of have been working on some recommendations to help get at this. I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, but I am excited about what will be an announcement made here in the next couple of weeks of a, uh, uh, a group of soldiers who have identified a need and they took it upon themselves to say, this is what we would like to do to address that need. Uh, they came to the leadership and I've been a part of it since its very beginning and supporting it and backing it. And they will be making an announcement of what they are who they are and what they're about here very soon. But I think that's the kind of initiative that uh, uh, that we need in our force altogether where we we take ownership of concerns or, or, or problems and work to identify solutions. Um, so I'm excited to uh, maybe in a later podcast be able to talk about that. Again, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag. It's probably somewhat already known, but it's the kind of initiative that, that – the leadership of this organization is certainly going to support. Uh, we're certainly uh, happy to see uh, them move forward with this. And, but I think it's just a, an indication of the type of people that we have here that want to see the organization succeed and they want to see how they can help in the organization succeeding by them having uh, success in their career. So looking forward to seeing that. Uh, we've recently reinitiated and created a special emphasis program. We've got people assigned to uh, particular areas there uh, that address everything from diversity issues to inclusiveness issues, and looking forward to continue to hear back from those. I've been a part of some JDAC, JDAC conferences. That's the joint diversity. I've been on to some on the national level. Uh, I've heard some very interesting speakers. Uh, and I don't think there's an easy answer to any of how we get about it, but I think you first of all got to have a desire to see changes and improvement. And I believe with that, in which I believe we have that, uh, there will be ways that we can get about uh, addressing some of those issues that were outlined in the survey. So, sir, this will be a three-part question. Um, what factors contributed to an organization as diverse as the South Carolina National Guard to be represented at the senior level, senior leader level, almost solely by Caucasian males. Do you view this as something that needs to be addressed? And if so, how is it currently or how will it be addressed? Certainly the leadership of an organization and, and the military is uh, not totally different from other organizations, but there are some unique perspectives of how the, the military uh, raises its leadership level. I mean, we, we come in as either privates or we come in as uh, second lieutenants, and there are certain career paths that are identified by the system that are somewhat dedicated and built around timing. You've got to have a certain amount of time to be eligible for promotions. 
you've got to have uh, certain schools that you have to do. And then as a soldier uh, or an airman, we have to uh, do the things that we are required to do, maintaining our, our physical fitness, our height, weight, and then uh, attending the schools that are necessary for promotion. But I think a critical piece in all of that, uh, and I look back on my career, um, is mentorship. And I've said this certainly since coming on board as a tag, but I've said this for years, that mentorship is a critical part in developing the leadership that is not only here today in place, but will be here five to 10, 15 years from now. Um, those things that I spoke of, those processes are important and they have to be addressed. But um, as a young lieutenant, as a young captain, and it goes all the way through my, my career, I've had people that have had uh, uh, a perspective of the organization that I've served in at a higher level. And they have been willing to share with me uh, what is necessary to prepare yourself for the next opportunity. And that's really what it's about, is being prepared for the next opportunity or the next assignment. So mentorship, I think, is, is critical to us getting more uh, diversity in our ranks at leadership levels. We've got to identify uh, who are potential uh, leaders at every level and, and work to give them an opportunity at tough assignments. And most senior leaders that I know of today and uh, work with either as the TAG or when I was the DAG or in my civilian career, um, you look at their portfolio, their, their, their biography, what they have done, and if you were an artillery officer, which I am, and you looked at the assignments, you would say those were the tough assignments. Um, not that all assignments are important, but some uh, just by the nature of what they are uh, responsible for are more critical to that particular uh, skill set. Uh, so making sure that we get people in the right assignments at the right time is important. And as a young officer or a young enlisted, you may not always see that, and you may not understand the importance of that. So having a mentor, having someone that can look at you uh, and say, uh, Lieutenant McCarty, um, you didn't do so well here. Matter of fact, you really messed it up pretty bad, and this is what you need to do to try to fix that. Now, you can take that as an individual one or two ways. You can take it as criticism, and you can take it personally, and, and may not um, respond to it, but I would recommend, if, uh, if you have that relationship, take that, that criticism and that constructive criticism and turn it to a positive. I think some of the better lessons that I've learned over the years have, have come out of uh, situations that didn't go quite so well. Uh, when things went well and they just said, attaboy, McCarty did a good job, uh, I don't think I absorbed what, what went into making that operation or that event go well. But when it didn't go quite so well, um, those one-on-one -on -one counseling sessions um, kind of hit to me what were important parts of what I needed to learn or relearn in some cases to uh, help me be a better leader in the future. Uh, we've got to get better at doing that. Um, and partly, I think, uh, in the world that we live in today, um, uh, we're, we're some, somewhat sensitive to criticism. We're somewhat sensitive to uh, being uh, maybe uh, singled out, uh, it's, and whether it's singled out, and I would never encourage or condone singling someone out among your peers, subordinates, or, or um, 
know, there's a time and a place for that counseling, good or bad. Um, but we've got to get better at that. And, and you can develop a formal mentorship program where you're assigned a mentor. And, but I don't know that that's really the approach that I want to take here. I want to, I think, uh, encourage our junior and our senior leaders to share their knowledge and to reach out for the knowledge. And I think uh, this, um, this group that, that's going to be announced here and, and come forth here uh, sees the value in that and, and what they're looking to do. They want to reach out, and I think there is already a receptiveness to their willingness to reach out of people saying, yes, I will, I will be there to help you. And it is going on. I know that, and I, I see that. But I think we've got to do a better job because ultimately the organization – to a degree, needs to represent uh, the soldiers and airmen that stand in our formation. And we're not there today. I mean, I think uh, that's, that's obvious. I'm, I'm happy to see, and we will be promoting uh, Colonel uh, David Jenkins here this coming weekend. Um, excited for the opportunity for Colonel Jenkins. He's a, a very dynamic officer. He's had a lot of those tough assignments that I mentioned earlier. He has grown up, I know, under some very uh, dynamic leaders himself, and they have, I'm sure, pulled him aside at times and said, Lieutenant, Captain, this is what you need to do to have an opportunity to advance your career to this level. Um, I don't know that it's realistic to say as a lieutenant that I want to be a general, um, but I think from a, uh, a, a junior leader's perspective, you ought to have a goal and a vision for where you want to be in the organization and where you want your career to go. And I think the Sergeant Major has said before, and I've heard it said many times, you've got to invest in your own future. You've got to take ownership of it, and you've got to be an advocate for yourself. Uh, But I, I look forward to us seeing the opportunities that we have to grow the organization more inclusive, uh, we, we do it one assignment at a time. Uh, the leadership that you see today, um, those investments were made years ago. Uh, the leadership that you will see in the subsequent years afterwards were investments that were made years ago. Uh, we, we need to invest more into those uh, future leaders, and I think during that investment process, as a result of that investment process, You'll see them shine as company commanders, battalion commanders, brigade commanders, and then uh, certainly their, uh, those opportunities for those senior leadership positions, timing becomes a factor. Uh, you, you, you've got to be in the right place at the right time, so to speak, in some situations. Um, I can look around at my peers that I served with over the years and find people that were truly as capable and deserving of being where I am today uh, so I feel very fortunate, uh, and they worked just as hard as I did. They were just as uh, productive as I was. It just, for some reasons, worked some ways in some capacities different than in others. But in the end, it's about developing leadership, developing individuals that can make this organization uh, as good as we want it to be. Uh, I don't think we're at. A, I don't think we've seen our best day. Because as we grow a more diverse leadership, we will benefit from all of those that make this organization, all the different perspectives, all the different walks of life that we, that we see our soldiers and airmen uh, come from. 
and in the end, that will make us a better organization. I know there's a multiple-part question, so if I miss part of that, <laughs> re-address, uh, re, uh, and, um, and I'll, uh, I'll just fire. Well, the next question kind of still goes with diversity, so we'll go right into that. Um, so how do you believe the South Carolina National Guard benefits from more diversity at the senior level? Well, I think it's important that when you look out across a formation, uh, from either perspective of being in the formation or being at the front of the formation uh, that you see uh, people that that you can relate to. Uh, we all wear green. Now even our blue brothers and sisters <laughs> in the air wear green, but uh, we, wanna, we want to acknowledge that both our Army and Air, uh, we strive to put the best leaders in positions that, that we believe at the time are most capable of successfully leading the organization. Uh, I don't think uh, we want to get in a, to a point of um, uh, putting a leader in a position that they're not prepared for. It's not fair to the organization that they're leading, nor would it be fair to them. Ultimately, our job is to set people up and set the organization up for success. But I think it's important as a young soldier to look at uh, people in your organization at all levels and see people that, um, that you can relate to, uh, relate to by race, gender, whatever that may be, um, and that you believe that through your hard work, through your dedicated efforts, through you doing the things that you're supposed to do, that you can elevate yourself up to that level or beyond. Um, and I think that thought process is bore out by um, many successful comp companies across uh, this great country. Uh, but you don't just get there by talking. It, it's going to take uh, a continual investment of our time and talent to get us there. Uh, we do boards uh, for key positions. Uh, Sergeant Major talked about those board processes. Uh, we try to have those boards as diversified as we can. Uh, those boards generally don't produce an answer. They produce a recommendation that either the TAG or whoever would be the appropriate authority for selection with me, and many of those are the TAG myself. Uh, but I look at everything that comes to me uh, and recently uh, did a board and filled our, our command chief warrant position, and there were six people that applied. Um, the the board came back and, and gave a, an order of merit, and I chose to interview all six instead of just taking the top ones. And because I'm looking at their backgrounds, looking at their their portfolios, I felt all of them had some unique strengths, some unique experiences that I wanted to see how that would fit in the organization into my leadership philosophy and and my personality. So we interviewed all six of them, and I gained some perspective. Even if they were not the selected uh, candidate, I learned something from that process that helped me make the decision, but brought out some things that I need to be looking at that will be important as we move forward down the road. So um, I would encourage whether or not you really believe you're ready for uh, an assignment to be willing to compete for it. And as a young leader, both as a young soldier, as a young officer, uh, as a young game warden, um, 
every time I had an opportunity to stand before some type of a selection committee, and I had been told no plenty of times, I tried to utilize that as a, a learning point. Looking across at your peers, looking across at your seniors that interview, um, it helps you develop those skill sets to sell yourself. Uh, a lot of people come qualified, but how well you can sell your qualifications. So be willing to be interviewed, be willing to stand up before groups and talk, because communication is in great part how we sell ourselves. How you can talk, how you can convey your knowledge and be effective in that communication is important. So take advantage of that as young leaders. Um, don't shy away from the tough assignments. Uh, yeah, captain's going to make the same salary whether he's in this position or he's in that position. But how the system ultimately looks at certain positions as you develop your portfolio going forward, there are differences in assignments. So be willing to take those tough assignments. Uh, so. so, sir, uh, to conclude, um, is there anything else that you would like to add on any of the subjects or topics? Well, again, I appreciate the opportunity to be in a position I am to serve. Um, I said when, when Governor McMaster appointed me that I enjoy soldiering. I do enjoy soldiering. I, I, I never dread a day of, of coming to work, and I can say that in my, really my 37 years uh, in uniform or my 24 years that I was in uniform at DNR. I did things that I enjoyed doing, and I think um, it's important to enjoy what you do. So I would encourage our soldiers and airmen that when you enlist or when you were commissioned, if um, you don't always get it right. Uh, I was an artillery officer. I'm a very proud artillery officer. Uh, but it was my fifth choice. Uh, the old dream sheet that the Army used to give us, it was not my first choice. But I grew to love and respect um, the work that artillery and the role that artillery has, and I have no regrets at all. But if you didn't get it right the first time or a recruiter steered you in a direction that may have been attractive to you at 17 or 18 but now that you're 24 or 26 may not be be willing to change directions in your career be willing to go back and get an additional mos be willing to go back and get an additional branch make yourself competitive diversify your portfolio and if you don't particularly like the unit you're serving in now when you were assigned there, it was close to where you may be living, but now you're living two and a half hours away. Don't just say, well, I'm going to get out. Sergeant Major and I talked to a lot of soldiers, and you know, one of the things that we always get around to in our questions are, what are your thoughts on reenlisting? And a lot of times it's simply, well, I think I'm just going to get out because of this. And a lot of it is, it's a long way to drive to drill, and this is not really what I want to do now. My career has changed in the civilian world and I either want to do something that complements my civilian career or in some cases people want to do something totally different. You know, I sit behind a desk all day long on this computer. I'd like to be out and be an infantryman and crawl in the mud. I got that. Be willing to ask for that opportunity. And unfortunately, we get um, soldiers that are told, no, if you're not going to be willing to stay in my unit, it's just time for you to go home. We've got to change that thought process. We've got to change that attitude. We've got to get at keeping good soldiers, keeping good airmen. 
it, it's going to take a little more work to do so, but in the end, we're a better organization when people enjoy coming to work, whether they do this full-time or whether they're M-Day soldiers. And I, as an M-Day soldier, I look forward to come to drill. Now, sometimes it conflicted with things I wanted to do. Uh, I'm a big sports fan, so the you know, ball game, or I'm a big outdoorsman, hunting, fishing, or uh, my wildlife duties said, we need you working this Saturday, so... I drilled that Saturday and ended up working another weekend. Um, but I've always found service wearing the uniform to be something I've taken pride in. And I would encourage our soldiers and airmen to take pride in what you do. Um, whether you're in for six years or 36 years, be proud of who you are. Be proud of the organization that you serve in. Give it your best. Uh, when you give it your best and whatever that produces in your career, you will know you have earned what you've got. So uh, I thank the soldiers and airmen. I thank the families uh, that help support our soldiers and airmen do the things that we do. I look forward to the opportunity to work with you on these issues and others. And if you've got ideas, if you've got things that you believe can help make the organization better, I know the sergeant major does. I do. The door is open. Um, General Jones' door is open. General Owens' door is open. Um, I would encourage you always to use the chain of command first. But if, uh, if that's not working or if you just see me out, <clears throat> see me out, let's talk. Uh, I enjoy getting to know the soldiers and I'm getting to, know, uh, to, um, to hear and see what, what, um, what makes them tick. So um, thank you for the opportunity to be here today and look yeah, forward to the next Yes, time sir. we're together. Yeah, yes, sir. You. Appreciate it. Thanks, Thank you. Man. So it was a great opportunity to have the Adjutant General as well as the State Command Sergeant Major to come in and address some questions and issues that individuals had. Yeah, it was. It was good. It was nice to have him here. And that was, you know, one of our goals with the podcast was to get leadership in and give our, our viewers uh, a chance to see, you know, what our leadership's doing, what their concerns are, how they're trying to fix, you know, our problems at the, the employee level, soldier, airmen, uh, civilian employees, the military department as a whole type thing. Um, so it's good. It's always nice. And I, I think there's good information and, you know, potential opportunity for more of these as we move down the road. And we've got plans to get, you know, more of the leadership in. Uh, Brigadier General Jeff Jones is, is going to come in. And, and talk with us. I think uh, Command Sergeant Major Vickery is going to come back and do a one-on-one -on -one with us at some point in time. Um, and then, you know, we're going to start reaching out to other sections of leadership, not just, you know, uniformed uh, and, and Army side, you know, but get some of the Air Guard leadership in, uh, some of the state employee folks, you know, they're um, helping this whole machine run. And, and so I think it'll be good information for everybody out there. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like this will be a good platform for people who feel like they haven't had a voice or have had questions and have never got a response or answer to them, that this is a way for us to get them the information, get the yeah. all of that out there so that they can those things can be addressed. And you know, we're we're explaining explaining. We're expanding the platforms that we're we're gonna be on with the podcast. We're trying to get to Spotify and uh, iHeartRadio, plus, you know, we still do YouTube and iTunes and, and then Divids. And, of course, on YouTube, you can obviously go in and, and uh, make comments directly on there. Um, but we have other ways, other social media, if you're listening on iTunes or Spotify or, 
iHeartRadio or one of the other ones, you know, and there's the SEGuard.com with the Ask the Leadership and stuff like that. So that stuff gets to us also. Yeah, so definitely uh, be on the lookout for more of these type of podcasts. Also, if you submitted a question and it wasn't addressed on this podcast, obviously we were limited to time. So check uh, the YouTube comments because I know they're going to be answering some more questions in the comment section. So please don't get upset if your question wasn't asked or answered. Um, There will be more follow-up questions in the comments and as well as future podcasts. Yeah, yeah. Just make sure you check and and it's there and i guess if you don't see something that you ask you know then obviously send us a message of some nature and we can figure out maybe where it didn't you know make it through the process but like i said there'll be more in the future of this thing and we're going to have more leadership on here so your, your question might not involve the tag directly you know you might be a state employee and you want somebody from the state side to answer and we're, we're going to try to facilitate that with the podcast in the future here. Yep. Well, I'm Specialist Chelsea Baker. And I'm Specialist David Erskine. And we'll catch you in the next episode.